Well, good morning. Please turn in your copies of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 6. continue on in our trek through Luke's account. We come to verses 27. Our text will be verses 27 through 36, Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27, hear the word of the Lord. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. And so ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it, and also now the hearing to our hearts and our lives. Jesus, in this text, gives to us what is his philosophy for daily life. And it's for this reason that I've titled the sermon, The Christian Philosophy of daily life because Christians really are nothing more than followers of Jesus. And so when we say that something is Christian, what we mean is that it is biblical, it is according to scripture and and also that it is according to the mind and will of God. And it is faithful to the teachings of our savior. Now perhaps you haven't heard philosophy being used in quite this way. 
Philosophy in this sense really just means the reason, the rationale for why something is done. And particularly why it's done from, in our context, from the scriptures. Ministers are, are often, at least as we are going through seminary and discussing the work of ministry amongst ourselves, we will speak of ministry and our approach to ministry as a philosophy. We call it our philosophy of ministry. It is the rationale for why we do the things that we do, why we prioritize the things that we prioritize, and that is based upon our understanding of Scripture. And so Christ, as the Son of God, the promised Messiah, and our Savior, the great teacher, gives us his philosophy of daily life. And this is the philosophy that he expects all who would claim his name through the mantle of Christian or disciple. This is the philosophy of life that Jesus calls us to hold. And what I want you to notice first, well, what, what Jesus does is he, he goes through and gives this philosophy uh, we could break it into, we'll say, three, since as a uh, Presbyterian preacher with a Baptist background, three points just seems natural. He breaks it up into three distinct categories. And we'll address them as the hands, the philosoph philosophical hands of daily life. Or you can just say the hands. We're going to follow the hands, the heart, and the head. Really, the hands, the head, and the heart. That's the order we're going for. And the idea is that the hands are what we are to do. And that's where Jesus starts here. He doesn't, he doesn't give us the theological foundation for it. He starts with giving us the practical responsibility. He starts with the duties that our hands are to take up. And so he says... First, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And I want you to think about for a moment just how radical it is that he is giving this instruction. I mean, even the teaching in his own day was such, coming from the Pharisees, they taught, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And Jesus is here, though Luke doesn't, Recorded this way, he is addressing what is really a false understanding of the Old Testament. That's why we read from, from Exodus 23. We saw there that the Lord commands his people in Exodus 23 that if you even see your enemy's ox wandering down the road, if you see it stuck under a burden, and your inclination is to not help, he gives the command, you shall help. You see, the, the idea of loving your enemies is really countercultural. But it's not just countercultural today. It is countercultural throughout all time. Because we do not naturally have this desire to love those who don't love us. We do not have the desire to love those who are unkind to us. Rather, 
our preferred approach is really legalistic. This is an area where legalism infects the hearts of all humanity. We would rather approach things to say, you need to earn my good favor before you receive it. You need to love me before I will love you. And Jesus turns that on his head to say, love your enemies. Love those who don't love you. Love those who are actively hostile. Love your enemies. He calls his disciples to be kind and kind-hearted, even towards those who are not kind and kind-hearted toward them. But he goes a step further. He says, do good. Do good to those who hate you. That's, that's not the way that we approach things. We don't desire naturally to be good to those who hate us. Our sinful inclination due to our fallen condition is to do good to those who do good to us. To treat those kindly who treat us kindly. To bless those who already bless us. And so as Jesus goes through, he keeps highlighting the fact that our approach to daily life, our approach to how we interact with people is to be, first and foremost, not legalistic. It is not to be works-based. We are not to approach people telling them, in effect, through our lives and our, in our day-to-day life, that if they want to receive good from us, we must first see that they will be good to us. Jesus goes on, bless those who curse you. We don't want to bless people who curse us. We don't immediately desire their well-being while they are cursing us. We don't always even desire their well-being afterwards. But Jesus commands, bless even the ones who are cursing. And then when he goes on and says, pray for those who spitefully use you. Really, if, if, if you want to get more to the exact nuance of what he's saying here, it's pray for those who spitefully abuse you. And the idea is that these people that we are commanded to pray for are those who are malicious in their treatment towards us. It's not accidental. It is deliberate, hostile, malicious behavior and maliciously abusive behavior. 
and Jesus' command is not wait until they do better. Wait until they don't abuse you. His command is pray for them in spite of their abuse. But he goes a step further. And he says, the one who strikes you, the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other. I mean, if that's not particularly countercultural for us as Americans, and I don't know what is. He is saying, if they strike you on the cheek, if they are beating you, you don't finish the fight. You don't turn the other cheek and then sock them in the jaw yourself. He's saying, you offer them your other cheek. You let them abuse you. What is his point? Quite simply is that we as God's people should not be, we should not be treating others the way that they treat us. We should not approach in our relationships, we should not approach them with a works-based mentality. That if you want to receive good from me, I must first receive good from you. And this is the philosophy, at least the outworking of this philosophy of daily life that Christ has given. And I would remind you as well, if you were to turn back to verse 20, we are reminded he's addressing the disciples. He's still addressing the disciples. And he summarizes all of this in verse 31. All of these actions get summarized in this way. Just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them. He is explicitly saying, that the standard by which you determine how you interact with people begins with how you want to be treated. Which means, to use cultural language, we don't desire karma to come and bite someone. That we are to not desire that people get what's coming to them. But we are to interact with people on the basis of how we want to be treated. And if you want a really clear way of thinking about this, the gospel is actually an excellent way of thinking about it. Because if you want justice, you don't want the gospel. 
justice means we receive the punishment for our own sins. Justice would have us die for our sins. But it's the mercy and the grace of God that on the one hand satisfies God's justice by sin being punished. But it's punished in another so that we can be reconciled. What we should desire is mercy from the hand of God. And therefore, what we should desire from others as well as from God is mercy. And legalism does not give mercy. A works-based relationship does not give mercy. Jesus doesn't say, do unto others as others have done unto you. He says, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Even if they don't, even if they haven't, that you are still to do to others what you want others to do to you. But he takes this a step further. You see, it's not, it's not enough. It's not enough that we just merely approach things with the idea of this is how I want to be treated. And so therefore I will treat other people this way. Jesus wants to get to the heart of, of the matter. And the heart of the matter is that redeemed sinners are changed sinners. Redeemed sinners should not look like other sinners. They should look different. And so he goes and he says, if you love those who love you, what credit is it? Why? Because sinners do the same. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is it? Sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is it? Even sinners lend to sinners hoping to receive back. Do you see what he's doing? He's in effect saying the call to be a disciple is a call to be different. It's a call to be not like sinners. It's a call to be like Jesus. And I want you to think about even the Great Commission. The Great Commission specifies that disciple making means teaching people to obey Jesus. Well, sinners don't naturally obey Jesus. And quite often, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't want to obey Jesus. 
What Christ is telling us is that his disciples, not should be different, ideally would be different. He is saying, my disciples are different. He is saying, my disciples are different because it is the triune God who works in them to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And, and let me just say with this, his disciples got the message. His brother James, who was not a believer during Christ's earthly ministry, got the message. That is why we have the controversy about faith and works and how do works fit in with our reformed biblical understanding of faith. And James makes it clear. Works don't provide faith. Works don't earn faith. But works demonstrate the presence of saving faith. That's the purpose. You see, if we do not work, it's not an indication that we're just not good Christians. It's an indication that our heart hasn't been changed. It's an indication we are still merely sinners. We're not redeemed sinners. We're not reconciled sinners. We are just sinners. Jesus calls for his disciples to be different from sinners. Really, what he calls them to do is to be more mindful to be more merciful. He calls his disciples to not be reactionary. But he calls you as a modern day disciple. He calls upon you to live deliberately according to his standard. Not according to my standard. Not according to your grandparents' standard. Not according to your church's standard. He calls us to live according to His standard. Found in the Scriptures. And any church worth its title of a church will push Christ's standard. And any elder worth his ordination will push Christ's standards. This is the key to Christian life, to Christian living. This is the content of the Christian's philosophy of life. And, and this also then gives us something to evaluate ourselves on. Are we different from the world? And not superficially different. This isn't different in the sense of, do we dress in a way that makes us look odd 
to the world. There are some who take that as so long as you stand out merely in appearance, then you are doing your part in being different from the world. Jesus said you are to live different from the world. So are you living in a way that is different from worldly sinners? And are you deliberately living that way? You see, if we simply live different because that's the way that we were raised and that's what we've known, we are no different from the world. The world does that. Unredeemed sinners do that. It is easy to live according to how we've been raised. It is much harder to live deliberately according to the commands and the instructions of Jesus. This also means then, if we are going to live according to God's word, then we have to know God's word. So are you reading? Are you studying? Are you applying God's word to your life? Are you getting specific? Are you saying, what does this text call me to do? How does it call me to live? Disciples of Christ. are different because they live different. And they live different because they understand the gospel. Jesus goes on. He's already addressed how we are to live. He's addressed how we are to think of it. But then he goes a step further. You see, it's not enough that we merely have hands that look Christian. It's not enough that we merely have a head that appears Christian. We have to get to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter, well, it's summed up in these last two verses. Notice what Jesus says. He summarizes his teaching. Love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. But what else does he say? It's not just that your reward will be great. But it's you will be sons of the Most High. You see, that's the key. That's the key. In, in saving us from our sins, Scripture uses the language of adoption. That we are adopted into the family of God. One day what we need to do is we need to have Jim give us a theological lesson on adoption. And given his experience, I believe he will open up our eyes in ways that we haven't seen before. But let me, let me just remind you of this. Adoption, true adoption, 
means you become members of the family. Not members of the family in the sense that an animal might be said to be a member of the family, okay? Because, well, y'all know we have a few cats. When my wife and I die, the cats get nothing, even if they're still alive. And so they are brought into, in a certain sense, the family units, but they aren't adopted. They aren't made heirs. And that's the key distinction. In our salvation, we are adopted. We are made, as Scripture elsewhere says, joint heirs with Christ. Which means all of the blessings and benefits that Christ receives as the eternal Son of God gets shared with us. Not saying divinity, of course. But you understand the point. Being in Christ, being adopted into the Father's family, means we are family. With the rights to an inheritance. And it's also important that he says, you will be sons of the Most High. Now he's not saying there's going to be some sort of gender confusion. But he's speaking to his time. When sons received the principal part of the inheritance. And in fact, if you look in the Old Testament, daughters receiving an inheritance was rather unheard of. And so Jesus is highlighting the fact that all of God's people become, in God's eyes, sons. Not in, again, not in the case of confused gender identity, but in the sense of, we all have the same right as joint heirs. The same right as sons. But with that comes an expectation to be like our Father. Think about that. And we, we understand that, humanly speaking, where we teach our children that they are to behave in a certain way when we are in public. Why? Because we don't want reproach brought upon our name based upon our children's behavior. And so Christ would have us view our relationship with God in much the same way that we are to be like God since we've been adopted as sons of God. We are to conform to be like our Father. So how does our Father interact with people? How does our Father in Heaven deal with His enemies? With those who hate Him? With those who spitefully abuse Him? With those who curse Him? Well, Christ tells us He is kind. To the unthankful and the evil. He's kind. Think about that. There are many unbelievers in our world, in our nation, in our community, 
who receive and enjoy many blessings from God. From rain falling to water their crops, to the blessing of material possessions, to the provision of homes to live in, clothes to enjoy, a peaceful society. All of these things are blessings from God. Family, long life, success in business endeavors. These are all part of the blessings, the kindness that God shows to people. But we can take it a step further. As God's people, as redeemed sinners, we need to remember what God did for us. What does Paul say in Romans? God demonstrated his love for us. When did he do that? While we were yet sinners. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Even if we go back and we consider, like consider for a moment the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. That God rained down fire and brimstone and so destroyed those cities and and the plane in which they lived that archaeologists, it took them thousands of years to discover the remains of those cities. And even now, we're not 100% sure that they've been found. Think about that. And yet, our society engages in much the same sorts of sins that brought that severe punishment. But God has not rained down fire and brimstone on America. We deserve it. But he's showing kindness. Think about the Canaanites, the Amorites, those that dwelt in the promised land while Abram was wandering through. And the Lord decided to hold off on giving the promised land to Abraham and his descendants. Why? Because their sins were not yet filled up. In doing that and in having a preacher of righteousness in their midst, God was giving them opportunity to repent. He was showing kindness to people who proved to be unthankful and evil. That's really the heart of the matter. That it's God's mercy and God's mercy towards wicked sinners that is to be the driving motivation for how we interact with sinners. There's another parable where Christ deals with this quite explicitly. You remember the parable of the unjust servant who owes the king that massive debt 
many lifetimes of debt. And he pleads with the king to let him work it off. And instead the king forgives it. But then he goes to a fellow servant who owes him only a day's wage. And he chokes him out and he says, pay me what you owe. And so the king then revokes his mercy and throws that wicked servant into the dungeon. You see, God expects those of us who have been the beneficiaries of his mercy, those of us who have received and experienced his kindness and his mercy to then turn around and give that to others. And the very definition of mercy is receiving things you don't deserve. Which is why he says, love your enemies. They don't deserve your love. That point is not being debated. Those who hate you don't deserve your good deeds. Those who curse you don't deserve your blessing. Those who spitefully abuse you don't deserve your prayers. The one who strikes you doesn't deserve to not be hit back. But Christ calls us to be merciful, to give what is not deserved because we have already received what we do not deserve. It's a call to be Christ-like, to be God-like in how we live. Thomas Watson put it this way, that godliness is God-likeness. And we are called to be godly. We are called to be like Christ. So ask yourselves, Ask yourselves, why do you treat people the way that you do? And is it founded upon the mercy of God? Are you kind to people because they're kind to you? Do you bless people who bless you? Do you love people who love you? Are you good to those who are good to you? Do you hate those who hate you? Why do you interact the way that you do with people? And if and when you find that you are not merciful because God is merciful, repent. It's sin. Repent. And run to Christ. And plead with him to help you be merciful, to help you be like God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven. We confess that 
more often than we want to admit, we do not follow your example in our interaction with others. Father, we don't even follow that example in our interactions with each other. Forgive us for being like that wicked servant who was no disciple of the king that he served. Father, make us true disciples of Jesus Christ. Help us to walk in obedience to your command. We know your law is good. Your commands are good and holy and just. Help us to walk as you command us to walk. Help us to be as we see you are. Help us to be merciful as you are merciful, to be kind, to unthankful and evil people. Help us to be kind when we are mistreated, when we are hated, when we are maliciously abused. Father, help us. Help us to shine forth the love that we have received and experienced from you in our interactions with each other and also with our communities. Father, if we can't if we can't love each other, if we can't be kind when we are abused by one another, if we can't be merciful towards the saints, how can we be merciful to sinners? Forgive us and help us. To walk in obedience to you. Father help us. To teach our children. Not only to be merciful. But why. They are to be merciful. And father we ask that you would. Bless us by causing our children's hearts to be receptive of this teaching. And Father, we ask that you would be merciful to us by causing our children to love you, to grasp this command to be merciful as you are merciful in spite of our failures as parents to be merciful towards our children. And Father, we ask that you would do this so that Christ would be exalted, 
so that as people see us, they would get a true and genuine taste of Christ. It's for His name's sake that we pray. Amen.